Thank you, Hugh, for uh, praying us into the sermon, and uh, we will simply begin. The first three verses of Psalm 98, and I encourage you, if you have a Bible, to, uh, to turn to the passages that we'll be looking at. The first three verses of Psalm 98 call you, and they call me, to sing praise to God for the salvation that he has worked. Twice in these first three verses of Psalm 98, the psalmist mentions the global benefits, the benefit to the nations, to you and I, that God has worked. Verse 2, he has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. Verse 3, all the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. God has worked salvation for us, for the nations, but we need to pay special attention to the beginning of verse 3, where the process of bringing about our salvation, the salvation that we enjoy, where the process is described. The beginning of verse 3 reads, he has remembered his chesed, is the word in Hebrew, his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. It was through God's remembering his steadfast love and faithfulness to Israel that the salvation of the nations has come about. Well, as we return this morning to Matthew's genealogy, uh, we're exploring now the second section of that genealogy, the end of verse 6 down through verse 11, if you have Matthew 1 open before you. Woven throughout this section is, we're going to see this, is God's patient, steadfast love to Israel, his faithfulness to Israel, out of which comes salvation in Jesus for Gentiles like you and I. The second section of Matthew's genealogy is concerned with 14 kings who reigned in Judah, all of them blood ancestors of Joseph, father of Jesus. So let's talk about this concept of king and kingship in ancient Israel just for a moment. Let's meditate on this. Yahweh was the divine king of Israel. The divine king of Israel. And the kingly reign of Yahweh, God of Israel, was a forever thing. There are a multitude of, of Old Testament passages that express the forever nature of Yahweh's kingship. Just four examples to give you here out of many that we could mention. Exodus 15 verse 18, Yahweh will reign forever and ever. Exodus 15 18. Or Psalm 10 verse 16, Yahweh is king forever and ever. Or Psalm 29 verse 10, Yahweh sits enthroned as king forever. Or Jeremiah 10, verse 10, Yahweh is the true God, he is the living God and the everlasting king. So there is no time limit to God's kingship, amen? There are no term limits 
with God's kingship. He is king forever and ever. And along with having this forever kingship, the reign of Yahweh is also not limited, geographically speaking. And so here we look at passages like Psalm 22, verse 28. Listen to this. Kingship belongs to Yahweh, and he rules over the nations. He rules over the nations. Psalm 47, verse 2. Yahweh, the Most High, is to be feared, a great king over all the earth. Psalm 96, verse 10. Say among the nations... Yahweh reigns. So then not only is God's kingship forever, it is also geographically comprehensive. It extends over the entire earth. He rules all nations on earth, and his forever global kingship is characterized, isn't it, by righteous judgment and equity and unlimited power and benevolence toward his subjects. Psalm 93, verse 4, you, God, have sat on the throne giving righteous judgment. Giving righteous judgment. Psalm 93, something we desperately could use a whole lot more of in our world today. Righteous judgment. Psalm 93, verses 7 and 8, Yahweh sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne for justice. And he judges the world with righteousness. He judges the peoples with uprightness. Yahweh, the divine king. Now we know, don't we, that at a certain point in Israel's history, the people asked for a human king to be installed on the throne in Israel. Their motive was questionable. But God decided to grant them a king in keeping with his promise that dated all the way back to Abraham that kings would emerge out of Abraham's lineage. Now when we talk about human kings in ancient Israel, here I'm going to give you the Coles notes on what the human king was supposed to do and what he was supposed to be. Human kings were to be like a walking mirror, think about a mirror walking, a walking mirror of God's kingship. The human king in Israel was to be a living, walking, talking display of God's rule on the earth. The human king was to remain steadfast in covenant relationship with the divine king. In fact, the human king was commanded by God to do this, to handwrite a copy of God's law and learn that law and keep that law and be subject to that law all the days of his life. The human king was always to understand himself as subservient to the divine king, modeling on the earth the characteristics of the divine king, ruling justly, protecting his people, defending the cause of the poor, being merciful over commoners, 
walking humbly, not exalting himself above his people. And so we understand that there was to be this intimate, unbending relationship between the human king on earth and the divine king in heaven. The human king was not free to do as he pleased and rule as he pleased. Well, the question is, how did the the human kings in Israel do at this? Well, let's go back now to our genealogy with that as an introduction. Matthew chapter 1, verse 6. Now, last Sunday, we ended off with the first part of verse 6, Jesse, the father of David, the king. But now notice the next part of verse 6. Matthew could have easily said, and David was the father of Solomon, period, full stop. But Matthew adds this bit about the mother of Solomon, being the wife of who? Uriah, otherwise known as Bathsheba. As soon as we see that name Uriah popping up in this genealogy, we reflect back on Uriah's story. Uriah was murdered by who? By King David, so that King David could cover his crimes and have Uriah's wife, Bathsheba. The point is this. As Matthew begins his list of kings who arose in the lineage of Judah, he begins on this dark note. The first of the kings in Judah's line, King David, although David unquestionably accomplished many great things for Israel and was called the man after God's heart, although that is true, David also turned out to be a murderer and an adulterer. With the mention of the name Uriah here in this genealogy in connection with King David, a minor chord is sounded, a dark note is sounded. Now, skip with me down to the end of this second section of the genealogy, just for a moment, verse 11, notice that the final thing that Matthew mentions in this second section of the genealogy, which ends in verse 11, is what? The deportation to Babylon. In other words, Israel's exile to Babylon. Another dark note in the history of Israel, and the exile came about, why? Because the kings of Israel and the commoners with the kings had a long and sordid history of rebellion against God and his law. So get this, the second section of Matthew's genealogy begins on a dark note with that name Uriah, and it also ends on a dark note with that mention of the exile. We get the feeling then that the people who will be listed in between these two bookends in this section, they might be less than ideal. Now let's go back to verse seven. King David and the wife of Uriah produced Solomon. Solomon succeeded David as the next human king over Israel. Now, if you have a package of 12 eggs, six of them being farm fresh eggs, 
and six of them being completely rotten, that was Solomon. As king over Israel, Solomon was a real mixed bag of good and bad. On the good side, Solomon expanded the territory and the wealth of Israel. And of course, under his administration, the temple was built, major event in Israel's history. And of course, Solomon was known far and wide for his astounding wisdom. But when it came to the explicit commands that God had given for kings in Israel, which we have recorded for us way back in Deuteronomy 17, when it came to those things, Solomon failed at every point. Deuteronomy 17 said that a king must not have many wives. Solomon had many wives. Deuteronomy 17 said that a king must not amass great quantities of gold. Solomon amassed great quantities of gold. Deuteronomy 17 prohibited kings from having many horses. Solomon had many horses. So then in the end, the verdict that Scripture gives on King Solomon is this, that his heart was not wholly true to Yahweh his God. 1 Kings 11, verse 4. His heart was not wholly true to Yahweh his God. Solomon fathered Rehoboam, the next human king over Israel, the next name in Matthew's genealogy. In the words of my esteemed seminary professor, Jerry Shepard, Rehoboam was one stupid kid. Rehoboam's father, Solomon, had set up, in his kingship, had set up an oppressive taxation system in Israel. Say amen, Quebecers. And the people complained about it to Rehoboam when he arrived on the throne. They said, hey, this thing that your father set up, it's oppressive. Arrogantly, Rehoboam took bad advice from his peers instead of listening to the wise elders. Rehoboam decided, in fact, that he would increase the burden on the people rather than decrease it, and the nation blew up. The nation fractured apart. So beginning in the reign of Rehoboam then, we now have an Israel that is split, that is divided into two kingdoms, the north called Israel and the southern kingdom called Judah. And furthermore, concerning Rehoboam, 1 Kings 14 tells us that it was under his rule that pagan shrines and cult prostitutes arose in the land. Rehoboam's legacy as the human king over Israel is summarized in 2 Chronicles 12, 14. He did evil, for he did not set his heart to seek the Lord. He did evil, for he did not set his heart to seek the Lord. Now, before we continue forward in Matthew's genealogy, we need to return to the initial idea in the sermon, the idea of God showing steadfast love and faithfulness to Israel 
so that our salvation as Gentile people from the nations could come about. In the midst of the history of unfaithful, rebellious kings and people in Israel, God, we need to see, God remained faithful to his promises. Amen? Faith, he always does. Faithful to his promises. Faithful to his mission to bring about the salvation of the nations, which started back in Abraham. Listen, when Solomon was still on the throne of Israel, God prophesied the split of the kingdom that was going to happen under Solomon's son, Rehoboam. God said in 1 Kings 11.36 that when that split in Israel happens, he said, I will give one tribe, namely the tribe of Judah, to his son, that is to Solomon's son. And why? That David, my servant, may always have a what? Lamp before me in Jerusalem. God promised that a lamp of kings in the line of David would always be burning in Judah, in the southern kingdom. And this promise of a Davidic lamp going on and shining in the southern kingdom of Judah, despite all the sin of the human kings, this gets repeated another few times throughout the book of Kings. God would remain faithful, we need to understand, faithful to the covenant that he had made with David, even in the midst of David's descendants sinning and ignoring God and worshiping other gods and allowing pagan practices to infiltrate Israel, God would keep his commitment to have a descendant of David on that throne in Judah burning like a lamp through all of it. And he would do it, why? For the salvation of the nations, the whole reason we're sitting here today. The salvation of the nations, the salvation that would arrive eventually in who? In Jesus Christ, who comes in what lineage? In the lineage of David. Amen? Now let's go back to the genealogy. Still in verse 7, we're tracking through here. Rehoboam fathered Abijah. Abijah reigned as king in Judah for three years, and his legacy is summarized in 1 Kings 15, 3. Abijah walked in all the sins that his father did before him, that Rehoboam did, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God. Abijah. Abijah fathered Asaph, otherwise known as Asa, who was more or less a decent king in Israel. Asa was quite zealous for the Lord. In fact, Asa set about removing idols from the land, a good thing, and Judah also enjoyed a period of peace because of Asa's devotion to the Lord. Yet still, toward the end of Asa's life, 2 Chronicles 16 tells us that he stopped relying on the Lord in the matter of war and also in the matter of his own disease that he was facing. Stopped relying on the Lord. Asa turned out to be an imperfect human king. And yet God continued in his faithfulness. He ensured that the lamp 
The little fire in the line of David would continue to burn in Judah. Well, Asa fathered Jehoshaphat. I love that name. Jehoshaphat. Kind of rolls off your tongue. Jehoshaphat reigned in Judah for, see, I'm trying to get you excited about the genealogy. Jehoshaphat reigned in Judah for 25 years. 25 years. He was zealous for the Lord. He reformed the justice system in the land. The Lord gave him military success, and the riches of the nation also increased. The wealth of the nation increased under his reign. Scripture says that Jehoshaphat did what was right in the sight of the Lord. However, Scripture also tells us that under Jehoshaphat's reign, the pagan high places were still not fully removed in Judah, and there's also record of Jehoshaphat entering into uh, what I would call an ill-conceived, an ill-conceived alliance with the wicked northern king, uh, Ahaziah, for which Jehoshaphat received a prophetic rebuke, and he also received the destruction of his newly built naval fleet. Jehoshaphat was not a completely ideal king either. Now, in Matthew's genealogy, next comes Joram. Joram reigned as king for eight years in Judah, and here's how he kicked off his reign. He kicked it off with the murder of all his brothers, killed them all off. He married the daughter of the northern king Ahab, and under her spell, Joram built high places in Judah, went ahead and built them, and led his people away from the Lord to the worship of Baal. And there was an uprising in Judah because of Joram forsaking Yahweh, and Joram received a stern prophetic rebuke from the prophet Elijah. The Lord sent the Philistines and the Arabs into Judah to attack they stormed the palace. They carried off and killed all of Joram's sons except for one. And then God afflicted Joram with a terrible bowel disease, which ended his life. Joram's legacy was terrible. He was an idolater. He was a tyrant. His epitaph is very tragic, and it's given in 2 Chronicles 21.20, one of the most tragic epitaphs written in all of scripture, it says that Joram departed with no one's regret. Imagine having that on your tombstone. Departed with no one's regret. But even, friends, during the time of wicked Joram, listen to 2 Chronicles 21, verses 6 and 7, where we have an incredible statement about God's continuing faithfulness. It says, And he, Joram, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, yet the Lord was not willing to destroy the house of David, although he might have. Why? Because of the covenant that he had made with David. And since he had promised to give, what? A lamp to him and his sons forever. Now, as a Gentile, in 2021, I rejoice 
in that little notice because my salvation, my knowing the Lord, my having eternal life has blossomed out of God's faithfulness to the house of David despite all the wickedness of those Davidic kings, God remained faithful. Amen? He remained faithful. Now, the next person to appear in Matthew's genealogy is Uzziah, King Uzziah of Judah. But to get from Joram, who we just heard about, to Uzziah, Matthew skips over three kings. He skips Ahaziah, Joash, and Amaziah. We said last week that Matthew has arranged, carefully arranged his genealogy in three groups of 14 names each in order to emphasize David, whose name in Hebrew has the numerical value of 14. In order to achieve this second group of 14 names, Matthew has had to skip over three kings in the lineage of David. The the three that he skips over were mostly bad. with a glimmer of good. So Ahaziah did evil in the sight of the Lord and was assassinated after less than a year on the throne. Joash came to the throne at the tender age of seven, imagine, and reigned for 40 years. Under his administration, the temple was repaired, but in later life, Joash allowed the reemergence of pagan practices and he also murdered the son of a priest. The Lord dealt severely with Joash and he was eventually murdered in his own bed. Amaziah began his reign by killing those who had murdered his father Joash. Scripture says that Amaziah was not wholehearted in his devotion to the Lord. Eventually he ended up worshiping foreign gods And later still, he was captured in battle against the northern tribes. He too ended up murdered. Amaziah fathered Uzziah, whose name appears next in Matthew's genealogy. He began reigning at the age of 16 and reigned a total of 52 years, long reign. And he did many good things. He expanded the borders of Judah. He fortified the walls of Jerusalem. Uh, he, he was influenced in a very godly direction by the prophet Zechariah, and God gave Uzziah military successes. But Second Chronicles 26 records the downfall of Uzziah due to his pride. One day Uzziah came into the temple with incense to burn at the altar, but a priest stopped him and correctly told him, no, Uzziah, my king, uh, this, this kind of service is only for priests in Aaron's lineage. Uzziah became enraged, started screaming at the, at, the, at the guy there, and right there on the spot, the Lord afflicted Uzziah with leprosy, and he spent the rest of his days quarantined until he eventually died, Uzziah. Verse 9 of our genealogy takes us then to Jotham, who was a decent king. 
2 Kings 15.34 says that Jotham did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, and 2 Chronicles 27.6 says that Jotham became mighty, why? Because he ordered his ways before the Lord his God. However, the writers of Scripture also point out that while Jotham ruled over Israel, the people still followed corrupt practices and the high places were not removed. Which leads us to Ahaz, son of Jotham. Ahaz, descendant of David, was an idolater who had trouble trusting in the Lord. Instead of trusting in God for help, as the prophet Isaiah had advised him, Ahaz entered into an ill-advised alliance with the nation of Assyria to fight against the northern kingdom of Israel and Syria, who were mounting an attack, resulting, the whole thing resulted in Judah becoming a vassal state to Assyria and paying heavy tribute to Assyria. Ahaz also worshipped on the high places and he encouraged idolatry and even burnt his own son as an idolatrous offering, Ahaz. The tenth name in this section of Matthew's genealogy is Hezekiah. Many of us know King Hezekiah reigned in Judah for 29 years, and the writers of Scripture offer very high praise for Hezekiah. Listen, 2 Kings 18.5 says of Hezekiah, that he trusted in Yahweh, in the Lord, the God of Israel, so that there was none like him among all the kings of Judah after him, nor among those who were before him. Hezekiah was a godly reformer in Judah who rooted out idolatrous practices of all kinds in celebration of his reformation in Israel and in an act of diplomacy, Hezekiah went ahead and he invited all the tribes of Israel, even the northern tribes, to come down and observe Passover together. They'd been split for a long time and he invited them all to come and and observe Passover together. He also had military successes. He built up the moral and spiritual backbone of Israel But just to show us that Hezekiah was merely human after all, the writer of Chronicles tells us that toward the end of his life, his heart became proud. To his credit, Hezekiah did repent of his pride. Now, there's a massive contrast as we move forward, a massive contrast between King Hezekiah and the next person in the list, King Hezekiah. Manasseh, descendant of David. Manasseh was the worst of the worst in Judah. He began ruling at the age of 12, and unfortunately for Judah, he reigned a total of 55 years. The moral and spiritual backbone that Hezekiah had built up was now snapped under Manasseh. Every kind of idolatry and foreign superstition was now promoted in Judah. Manasseh rebuilt altars to Baal. He also shed blood. It's mentioned twice that he shed innocent blood 
in Jerusalem. 2 Kings 21.6 says of Manasseh, listen to this description, it's right in scripture, he burned his son as an offering and used fortune-telling and omens and dealt with mediums and with necromancers. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. In fact, Manasseh's evil was the final straw that caused God to promise, irrevocably promise, the destruction of Jerusalem at the hands of enemies, the exile. Even though we have record of Manasseh repenting in 2 Chronicles 33. Manasseh was succeeded by his son Amos, also known as Amon, who appears uh, 12th in this section of the genealogy, 12th of 14. Amon was essentially a carbon copy of his father Manasseh. Amon promoted the same idolatry that his father had. He reigned only two years before his own servants got tired of him and assassinated him which meant that his eight-year-old son, Josiah, was now thrust into the role of king, eight years old. Now, early in the sermon, I outlined what the ideal king in Judah was supposed to be and look like and, and be like. Josiah comes very close. He receives perhaps the highest praise in the book of Kings for any king in Judah. Listen to 2 Kings 23, 25, Describing Josiah, 2 Kings 23, 25, it says this, Before him, before Josiah, there was no king like him who turned to the Lord with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his might, according to all the law of Moses, nor did any like him arise after him. Josiah reformed Judah in a spiritual sense. When what was probably a copy of the book of Deuteronomy was discovered in the course of them repairing the temple, Josiah then led the nation to renew covenant with the Lord, and he absolutely obliterated the idolatrous practices that, that had infiltrated the land. He destroyed all the various altars and the implements that had been used in idolatrous worship. Josiah's spiritual reforms for Judah were even more far-reaching than Hezekiah's had been in his time. But what happened to Josiah? Well, at the, age, the tender age, the youthful age of 39, Hugh just turned 39, <laughs> the youthful age of 39, very abruptly, out of nowhere, Josiah was struck down in a battle that wasn't even his. The Lord took him. And for all the good that Josiah did, he could not overturn the promise of exile that had been levied by the Lord in Manasseh's time. Well, in between Josiah and the final name on this second section of the genealogy, there are another two kings who Matthew chooses to omit to get to his number 14. Both of these were evil. Their names were Jehoahaz, who ruled for only three months before he was deposed by the Pharaoh of Egypt, and Jehoiakim, who reigned at the time of Babylon's attack. The exile was coming, and it came, Babylon's attack on Judah. Jehoiakim 
did what was evil in the sight of the Lord his God, according to 2 Chronicles 36.5, and Jehoiakim was captured and he was taken in shackles to Babylon. But the 14th and final name that appears in this second, second section of Matthew's genealogy is that name Jeconiah, who was otherwise known as Jehoiachin. There will be a test on this later, so I hope you're keeping notes. But he too was an evil king. Jehoiachin reigned only three months and ten days before he was captured and taken to Babylon and put in prison where he would remain for 36 years in Babylon. Then, when Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, died, his successor, Nebuchadnezzar's successor, released Jehoiachin of Judah from his imprisonment, and the book of Kings ends with Jehoiachin, descendant of David, descendant of Judah, Jehoiachin being given a seat of honor and a place at the Babylonian royal table. Matthew, in this section of his genealogy, has outlined the story of the kings of Judah from David, Solomon, and Rehoboam who ruled over a unified Israel, then to the fracture of the nation under Rehoboam and the subsequent line of kings still descending from David who would rule in the south. Friends, God kept the lamp kept the fire of kings in David's line burning in Judah, and he did that through a roller coaster of good and bad kings, through this mixed bag of rebellious kings on one hand and more godly kings on the other. Judah had a son of David on the throne through all those many years up until the Babylonian exile. Contrast that, that single dynasty in David's line in the south, contrast that with the northern kingdom where nine different dynasties arose during roughly the same time period and where not one of those northern kings gets a positive evaluation in Scripture. God in his faithfulness to his covenant kept the lamp of David burning in the southern kingdom in Judah. Sometimes the lamp burned bright like in the initial part of David's reign or the initial part of Solomon's reign or in Hezekiah or in Josiah. But other times the lamp appeared to go very dim with the likes of Rehoboam, Joram, Manasseh, etc. But the lamp stayed lit. I always loved having campfires out at the lake in Alberta. But when it was time to go to bed, we'd sat under the stars and talking about existential problems <laughs> like you do when you look up into space. Um, when it was time to go to bed, we would douse the fire with a bucket or two of water. And sometimes even after the water was poured on, uh, you could still see a little orange ember or two, right? still burning, faintly glowing. That's the picture at the end of the book of Kings. A little faint ember yet burns 
in the line of David as Jehoiachin, descendant of David, is released from prison in Babylon. You come to the end of Kings and you ask the question, could it be that with this little ember burning in the midst of Israel's exile, that the house of David, the royal lineage of David, will somehow continue? Could it be? Will God remain faithful to his promises even when the odds are stacked against it? Will the flame, will the lamp of David's house burn brightly again? Will there ever come a king in the line of David who will be all that the king was supposed to be? fully subservient to God for all his days, obedient to the law of God without wavering, without ever wavering, ruling with justice, ruling with righteousness, ruling with equity, with benevolence, and genuine in his care for the poor his heart set on the glory of God and his life displaying love to God always in every circumstance. Will there ever come another Davidic king who is mighty in power, having victory over the enemies of God's people and being rich beyond measure in resources, and being unfailing in his zeal for God and in his care for his subjects, will there ever be another king in the line of David whose wisdom might come close to that of Solomon? Or whose zeal for the temple might match Josiah's? Will there come a king in the line of David who will successfully exercise dominion over the entire earth and subdue the earth as the original king, Adam, was commissioned to do? The heart of the human king was supposed to correspond with God's heart. But, what if a human king came whose heart was God's heart? Because this king in David's line was both man and God. What if there came a king in David's line in whom a true and actual merger of perfect human kingship and perfect divine kingship could be found in the same person? What if God himself <laughs> incarnated in the human flesh of Jesus, born of Joseph, descendant of David? Then we would have a king who could legitimately say, I and the Father are one. Then we would have a king who would be far greater, far greater than David, 
whose wisdom would far surpass that of Solomon, whose riches would not be limited to any physical storehouse or storehouses, whose ability and justice, it's okay, my PowerPoint's done anyway, whose ability and justice and righteousness and mercy and truth would be unmatched and unmatchable. King Jesus, my friends, is that king. Are you with me today? King Jesus is that king. He is the only sinless king, and his rule is forever. His rule is global. God in his faithfulness, God in his mission to save us, to save you, to save me, gave us Jesus Christ in the lineage of David, the God-man, our Savior, our Lord, the crucified, risen, ascended, and soon returning King of Kings. He is the one who, instead of taking action to save his own skin in a time of trouble, like so many of the Judean kids, kings did, Jesus went willingly, didn't he, and resolutely to the trouble of the cross to save his people. He is the light of the world who burns far brighter than any lamp before him in Judah. Now we return as we finish this off to where we began today, Psalm 98.3. God has remembered, hasn't he? Has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel, yes? God kept that lamp burning in Judah so that Jesus, Savior of the nations, our Savior, would finally arrive. And so now it is the case that all the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. And so we end this singing to the Lord God a new song today, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked this mighty salvation. My friends, carry these things with you into your week. Amen. Let's pray. Father, it's been uh, mentioned several times this morning in our worship service how you work slowly over decades and centuries to accomplish your marvelous work And Lord, we are the beneficiaries and recipients of the salvation that has come in Jesus Christ. You have solved all by yourself our greatest problem, which is being um, at enmity with you. But you have brought peace in the relationship by the shed blood of Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord, this morning for our Savior, for his coming. And Lord, we look forward and we will marvel uh, at the time of his second coming praise you, we adore you, we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.